Amos in your Bibles, the book of Amos. In September of 2011, um, our family was stationed uh, in missions work in Nova Scotia, Canada. Around the 6th or 7th of that month, I can't remember the exact day of the week, we made a trip to visit family here in Wisconsin, as well as uh, in the Chicago area. In fact, as I was reflecting on it, uh, we, on September 9th, that Sunday, Pastor Mike Asher had invited me to preach here uh, from this very pulpit, and I preached from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 on the call to sobriety uh, and biblical priorities in light of uh, what will be a sudden and unexpected return of the Lord. That call still stands. <laughs> on Tuesday, though, of that week, September 11th, we were uh, there in Chicago, in Chicago, and my father-in-law called home, and he said, turn on the TV, a plane has flown into the World Trade Center. And I remember thinking what some of you have communicated, that this was some you know, small private plane that had you know, made a mistake, lost control, and ended up uh, into uh, one of those twin towers. I turned on the TV and uh, saw something that I just, my mind could not imagine. I saw the huge gash already in one of those towers. I saw the smoke that was billowing out. And then while I'm watching, and they're kind of trying to talk, and nobody really knows what to say, just uh, out of the blue, completely unexpectedly, uh, to everyone, myself included, another jet just flies straight into the other tower. And uh, then in just a few moments, there's reports of, of uh, uh, another plane crashing into the Pentagon. There's uh, then a, the reports of one crashing in a field out in Pennsylvania that was intended for another high-value target, Washington, D.C., most likely the capital itself. And at that point, it's clear America was under attack uh, from Islamist terrorists. And by the time the body count concluded, it was just under 3,000 uh, that had been killed. And I think all would agree, a, a sense of invincibility was gone forever. Um, our flight back to Nova Scotia had to be postponed almost a week. And when we paused for a layover in Newark, New Jersey, uh, the smoke... Uh, that was still burning from the Twin Towers uh, and the surrounding area was still billowing up into the sky um, over a week later. On Sunday this past week, our country acknowledged uh, the 15th anniversary of that tragedy. And we aren't going to try to answer every question, but I do want over the course of the next several weeks to try to contribute to a biblical filter, at least for our thinking, um, through some of the questions that come up. Within days uh, of the 9-11 tragedy on a popular Christian uh, TV network, um, Jerry Falwell said, I quote, I fear this is only the beginning. And then he declared <coughs> that what happened that morning would be, and again I'm quoting his words, that what happened would be minuscule. If, in fact, God continues to lift the curtain and allow the enemies of America to give us probably what we deserve. 
He specifically pointed to, and again, these are his words, he pointed to the pagans, the abortionists, the feminists, the gays, the lesbians, the ACLU, the people for the American way, and other Christ-haters. Several days later, Falwell acknowledged that a White House representative had called him while he was driving to the National Cathedral Memorial Service and told him that the president, George Bush, disapproved, and he subsequently issued an apology. I want to ask tonight, is it possible that 9-11 really was the result of God's lifting a veil of protection and of bringing judgment? Is it possible that Hurricane Katrina, four years later, that took the lives of 1,800 residents of New Orleans area, the surrounding region? Is it possible that Hurricane Sandy struck just four years ago, 2012, in the New York City area? Are those additional installments, as he said, of God's judgment? I was rereading some reports from the Sandy Hurricane. It spoke of strong winds, the flood at high tide, combining with a fire that produced grapefruit-sized flaming flakes, clouds of smoke that distorted perceptions, made it impossible to know how near the fire was. One man that experienced that in Queens said the fire just kept spreading because of the wind. It was like being in front of a flamethrower. The most harrowing part of it was hearing the screams in the dark. It was, he said, like the apocalypse. One account told of a reporter that was watching a mother trying to carry two little boys to safety, only to watch all three of them just get washed out to the sea. And nothing that could be done. When you hear those things, is it possible that God could be behind any of this and be judging our country? Some, of course, want to completely explain away that potential. 9-11 is simply the result of wicked men following a cursed ideology. Um, though they did it in the name of God, God didn't have anything to do with that. That's what some would say. When it comes to natural catastrophes like Katrina, <coughs> insurance companies used to refer to all of those sorts of things as acts of, acts of God. Um, but it has become more common in public discourse and official discourse to refer to them as acts of nature. When a tsunami hit Japan in 2011, took the lives of over 10,000. A woman's professional basketball player I had never heard of before um, suggested that God was angry with Japan. I don't even know how they kind of got her to give some commentary, but she gave it. And, and there was uh, an absolute uproar about that. And one of the organizations that issued an esta a statement was the Anti-Defamation League in New York. And they issued a statement that included this pronouncement. The notion that God would punish an entire country because of some assumed moral or spiritual defect is, in fact, another form of intolerance. 
The, the notion that God might judge a country because of some moral, spiritual defect is just incredible that somebody would say that. But can we and should we just dismiss the thought of God as a potential source of terrorist attacks or natural catastrophes? And as I said a few minutes ago, I'm not intending to be comprehensive in one message and to declare uh, all the answers and and we may not be able to cover, you know, even all the questions in a series of messages. But tonight, I do want to just briefly point to one passage that makes it clear that God does judge nations for their sin. And this is one of the messages proclaimed in the book of Amos. If you have turned there, and we'll just look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 1, the words of Amos who was among the herdmen of Tekoa. And this is, first of all, telling us that Amos was a, a farmer. Later in chapter 7, tells us that as well, that before God had called him to preach. And Tekoa is a city just south of Jerusalem. He's living in the kingdom of Judah during a time, as it goes on to describe, <coughs> which he saw concerning Israel. Days of the divided kingdom, he's living in Judah uh, but he's, he's communicating primarily concerning Israel and to give the description of who are the kings in those days. And when you have opportunity to go and research it, <coughs> uh, Amos is, is living in Judah, but he's preaching concerning Israel at a time when Israel uh, was enjoying really thriving commerce, lux- luxurious lifestyles, uh, indulgence of the rich. Uh, These are things that are noted both in other books as well as here in Amos. And it wasn't to the neglect of religious activity because there's a zeal for religious activity that is noted again uh, repeatedly in the book. But you have then a people who are prosperous and religious And at the same time, the key message of the book is that they are ripe for judgment. In uh, chapter 8, in fact, you could just uh, flip over there. Amos chapter 8, you can see, uh, Thus the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. (coughs) And the idea of what he goes on to declare is that they were like... uh, fruit that was ripe for the eating, and yet in their case, they, they are ripe for judgment. And he declared that when he sent it, notice verse 3, the songs of the temple shall be howlings in that day, saith the Lord. And this is amazing. There shall be many dead bodies in every place. They shall cast them forth with silence. You're prospering materialistically. You have indulgent lifestyles. The rich are getting richer. You're still religious and going through all the motions that I tell you. You're ripe for judgment. It's going to come. And when it comes, there will be dead bodies all over the place. That's God's own message through his prophet. Now go back to chapter 3, if you will. Amos, at the beginning of calling their attention to the coming judgment, wanted to make certain that people did not mistake calamitous events that were about to come upon them 
as anything short of an act of God. Look at verse 1, Amos chapter 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, I want to stop there and have us note this, first of all. The severe judgment about to come on Israel was at least in part because of her unique relationship with God. And when he uses that expression, you only have I known, he's not saying you're the only one I know the facts about. God knows every detail about every nation. But he's trying to say, you uniquely, I have entered into a special relationship with you. And it's a declaration that privilege increases responsibility. You've had the opportunity of unique relationship with me, with God. And because of that unique unique, uh, opportunity, it increases responsibility and accountability, and it ultimately increases the degree of punishment that will come. If you've had unique opportunity to know God, to know His Word, to have the Scripture put to memory, (coughs) to have the opportunity to have even taught it to others, you've had the opportunity of seeing lives changed in your very presence. You've had what many people on the earth don't have. You've had this unique light. You've had this unique relationship. I'm telling you, it increases responsibility. It increases accountability. And if you rebel against the Lord, it will increase the measure of punishment you experience. This is God's message to this nation. And beginning in verse number 3, the prophet uses, and you could count them, there's seven rhetorical questions. Seven rhetorical questions to proclaim that the judgment was inevitable. When I say rhetorical, <coughs> hopefully you know what we're talking about. That's, that's one where it's not asking a question looking for an answer. It's asking a certain way for effect. The one asking it assumes everyone will get it right. It's asking a certain way. And the point of these questions is they're inseparable links in day-to-day life, and there's going to be an inseparable link between Israel's sin and God's judgment. Look at verse 3. You can see what I'm saying as we read through it. Can two walk together except they be agreed? And the answer to that is what? Okay? If two people are going to go on a walk together... They have to be agreed where they're going. (laughs) If one says, I'm going left, and the other says, I'm going right, they're not going to walk together. There has to be an agreement. And the same answer can be given to all the following questions. Look at verse 4. Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he had taken nothing? Can a bird fall into a snare upon the earth where no gin is, that is, where no trap is? Can a bird be taken in a trap if there's no trap been set? And the answer is, no. Shall one take up the snare from the earth and have nothing at all? Can the trap be triggered if there's nothing to trigger it? Well, no. Shall a trumpet be blown in a city and the people not be afraid? That's a reference to that trumpet sounding a warning of war. An enemy is approaching. If they know the sound of the trumpet that warns, are Can that trumpet go out and nobody be afraid? Well, no. 
All of those questions are very simple. But look at this one. Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord not done it? And the Lord hath not done it. Now, <clears throat> the answer is still no. We've had six in a row where the answer is easily no. The seventh one we may have some trouble with, but we've been set up for this. Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord not, and the Lord hath not done it? And the answer is no. It is important for us to take note of the fact that the reference to evil in this verse is not referring to what is immoral. James 1 and verse 13 tells us that God is never the source of temptation to that which is immoral. There are times in the scripture where the word evil has reference to physical calamity. What is, we would even maybe say, humanly tragic, a tragedy. Um, Genesis 44 and verse 34, if you want to connect a reference to it. <coughs> Jacob's son, um, Judah, said, If I do not return home with my brother Benjamin, I don't want to see the evil that will come on my father. And what he meant was, my aged dad will probably suffer a heart attack, have a stroke, die of grief, if I come home without Benjamin. He's already lost who? He's already lost Joseph. And if I come back without Benjamin, my, my dad's going to drop over. I don't want to see what's going to happen to him. That's, and that's the way he uses it. There's more, more references like this where the Bible um, uses the word evil, doesn't have a moral connotation. It has the idea of calamity, tragedy. That's the idea that's communicated here in Amos 3.7. I would say maybe the closest word we would use in everyday terminology is disaster. Right? Amos is asking then a rhetorical question. Can there be disaster in the city and God not have done it? Samaria, the capital city of Israel, was going to be destroyed. You can go into chapter 4. I'm not having us look at all these and settle in. But God, God talks, first of all, about withholding rain so there would be a famine, about sending a plague of disease, about using the attack of a hostile enemy. And the prophet wanted Israel to know ahead of time that when the famine came, when the disease came, when the attack of the enemy came, he wanted them to know ahead of time, this is God dealing with you because of your sin. Make no mistake about it. That's what he's saying to Israel. Make no mistake about it. Don't think this just happened. This is just coincidence. You know, this is an act of nature. <clears throat> this is an act of God. You may hear <coughs> something like that from this theme, and, and maybe, maybe you're saying, so pastor, you are saying, we should know the 9-11 attacks, the hurricanes, these things are the judgment of God. Well, I'm saying this at a minimum, <clears throat> that no one should ever think that a hurricane, an earthquake, a tsunami, a terrorist attack, or any disaster is outside of God's control and God's purpose. No one should for one minute think, <clears throat> that any disaster is outside of God's control and purpose. Understand that we want to, even ourselves, try to find a way that God's not 
involved in this. It, it makes God seem harsh, unloving, whatever else we want to be, and we're afraid people are going to be turned off. I understand that. But brethren, we need to face this. The only way to take God out of the picture is to either, number one, limit his knowledge so that he wasn't aware ahead of time, or to, number two, limit his power so that he's unable to stop it. And neither of those is anywhere we want to go. Do you want to limit the knowledge of God? Do you want to limit the power of God? And we're not going to end up vindicating God's love by making him either too ignorant or too weak. That God is no God at all, as the Bible teaches. In the book of Job, we read that even when God allowed the devil to attack Job's possessions and Job's person, that God had to grant permission and God had to set the boundaries and God did so in keeping with his own purposes. No calamity is simply an act of nature. No calamity is an act of men. No calamity is simply an act of the devil himself. There cannot be calamity in a city and the Lord not involved. And in the case of Amos' prophecy to Israel, one source of the disaster on a people is the judgment hand of God. In Romans 1, I'm getting a little ahead of myself because we're going to, we're going to <clears throat> spend some more time in that uh, passage in a future week. But in Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And here's where it starts, brethren. It starts with this. When people knew God, but glorified him not as God, Neither were thankful. And they just suppressed what they know of God to live their lives the way they want to live it. Know God, but choose not to honor him as God in my life. And choose not to be thankful for the way that he's ordering my life. And decide that I'd like to live my life my way, thank you. And so, oh, that part of the Bible, just forget that part. (laughs) That part of the Bible, I'll forget that part. Listen, this is where, this is the kind, this this is where you start stirring up the wrath of God. Hey, this is where you start stirring up the wrath of God towards an individual life. And this is where a people start to stir up the wrath of God. When they, like Israel, frankly, when they like America, and other nations that have fallen before us, when they have much light, much truth, much opportunity, not just to know of God even through the witness of creation, but to know of God through open Bibles. To know him... Um, to know that everything in life is from his good and gracious hand and we are completely dependent upon him, but to not thank him and to not honor him as God, but just to suppress truth and live my life my way. 
That's a way to stir up the wrath of God. And brethren, I intended I'd be much further than this tonight when I started studying um, some time ago. But I really, um, for one thing, we're out of time. But for another, I just landed here and I just thought, I thought I need in my life more of the good old-fashioned fear of God. And I thought I needed in my life, and our church needs more of the good old-fashioned fear of God. Listen, you and I as individuals, you and I as families, and you and I as church members, the people of God, judgment needs to begin at the house of God. He's not a mellow grandfather figure. He's not father time. He's not the man upstairs. He's the holy God of the universe. He is moved to wrath when people that know him and should honor him as God aren't thankful for that relationship and that role and they just choose to pick and choose and throw out and edit parts of the Bible to live their life however they want to live it. Here's a verse that came to mind. I didn't even know where it was. I had to go back and look for it. The psalmist, after detailing a whole list of sins, said in Psalm 50 and verse 21, These things you have done, and I have been silent, and you thought I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Here's how he finishes. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. You've been sinning. You've been acting like parts of my word don't matter at all. And I have been silent. He is long-suffering. And because I've been silent, you started thinking it's just okay with me. But I note it. And I'm rebuking you now. I'm giving you opportunity to face it. And I've laid the charge. And I want to tell you, if you just go on to forget me, beware lest I tear you apart. I, honestly, do you think of God saying those kind of things? But here's your creator God and your Savior saying, listen, you forget me, I will tear you apart and there will be none to deliver. That's God. <clears throat> Is it possible that 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, and we could go on and on and on and on? Is it possible that those things are God lifting the veil and allowing enemies to come in? Is it possible that the disaster in the city is done by God because of his judgment hand upon us. <clears throat> Listen, it, it's not only possible, it is highly probable. There's a, a viewpoint that attaches any catastrophe, they look for any catastrophe to some particular action in the government. Oh, some, something happened in Israel and that's why we got this one. The Bible doesn't point us in that direction. We're going to address it. But brethren, when you look at wholesale of people that just, the Bible means nearly nothing. 
That's a people ripe for the judgment hand of God. I want to ask you to bow your head, close your eyes. <coughs> and I'd just like to ask you this. What is there? What is there in your life that you've been doing for some time? And you know it's wrong. I'm not talking about questionable, you know, I really need, I could use some wisdom. And I'm, I'm saying there's really no doubt. You could, somebody else could sit down with an open Bible. There's really no doubt. You've been doing this thing, and you've been doing it for some time, and you know the Bible puts that thing off limits. It's wrong. It may be the way you're thinking about a situation about someone. It may be words <clears throat> that have been spoken. It may be action lived out. It may be what you're listening to. It may be what you're watching. It may be where you're going. You've been doing it for some time, and you know it's wrong. But you've been doing it anyway. And it's almost like, wow, I haven't got nailed for it. Let me ask the flip side of that. What is something you know the Bible makes clear is something you ought to be doing and you haven't been doing it? The Bible, it, there's no doubt this is clearly the will of God for every believer to be doing such and such and you know it, and you're not. And tried to justify it, trying to kind of explain it, just try to ignore it. <coughs> and I know I haven't done that in a year. I haven't done that in six months. And it seems like the Lord's been silent about it. I mean... Where is it if God displayed his wrath and just tore you to pieces? There'd be no doubt about the justice of that. It'd be deserving of it. You knew God. You know you shouldn't have been doing it. You know you should be doing it. You knew him. You just chose not to honor him as God. Not thankful. You just went on and suppressed that truth. This is where we need to be. And we need to deal with these things before God. We need good old-fashioned fear of God. There's greater motivations. We ought to move to other motivations, but there's a wholesome use to fear. And woe be to us if we can't fear God.
and I don't mean to belabor, but if it'd be helpful to you to get up out of your seat and kneel at your pew, kneel here in the front to say, I, look, it's, it's been six months. It's been a year. This is, I, I need to acknowledge this. I mean, I'm not talking sackcloth and ashes, and yet there's, at times there needs to be even physical movement to mark something. Our Heavenly Father, we <coughs> thank you for the opportunity in your word and in the breadth of it, the full counsel of it, to see <coughs> the multiple facets of your glory. And Lord, I do thank you for the opportunity often to celebrate the glories of your grace, of your love, the riches of your mercy, your patience, your kindness, and your long-suffering, your forbearance, and to go on and on. And even to know, as a father pitieth his children, the Lord taketh pity on them that fear him. And Lord, we, we thank you for all of all of those things, the reality of the friendship and communion and fellowship that can be known with you. Uh, Lord, we also must confess that there's times we have allowed our own minds to just kind of edit out um, representations of your wrath, the certainty of your judgment against sin. Lord, we thank you that in, in your word we also see this. We recognize this is part of your glory. This is part of you being God. And we thank you that though we've not rehearsed it tonight specifically, that your wrath and your love are seen preeminently in one place at the cross of Christ. Full display of your wrath and yet never a greater display of your love. and So Lord, we pray that you'd help us to learn and to profit from the full representation of who you are. And we do ask for your mercy on <coughs> our country where you would be see fit, see fit to display it. Lord, we ask for opportunity for repentance, confession, mourning, grieving over our sin. We pray that you would take the truth and minister it to our own hearts. And, and Lord, grant us some victory that comes even from fear, wholesome fear that would cause us to break off our sin. We need your help. Oh, Lord, use the message and the theme and the challenge tonight to do that work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
we're going to uh, pick up here and uh, make an extension of it next week, Lord willing.